I mean, the idea when Bitcoin first came along was that you were taking the power away from the governments and the banks. Where there were internal conflicts in those countries uh, and the international community decided to help. And I can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and very weary of fighting. Welcome to episode two of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I'm your host, Cameron Christie. This week, I'm joined by Bart Hergeveen, who is in charge of cyber capacity building programs at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's International Cyber Policy Centre. He joins me from Canberra via Skype, and we discuss all things cybersecurity. Bart Hergeveen, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure, Cameron. So my first question for you is, you're currently um, in charge of cyber capacity building programs at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. So essentially, my first question is, what exactly is a cyber capacity building program? Well, thanks, Cameron. That's uh, that's a great question. Um, um, and uh, I'm still struggling uh, with understanding what that really is as well. Um, so I, uh, I took up of this job uh, about a year ago. Um, and uh, and it's, it's kind of a new job, a new functionality within within ASPE. As you may know, ASPE, um, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, is a think tank. So um, the, the bulk of our work is focusing on doing research, uh, publishing reports to inform um, public opinion, pu- public opinions, but also uh, policy of government. Now, so this is a little bit of a different beast. Um, and what I what I'm doing is um, l- looking at what kind of capacity needs or capacity shortfalls there are, both in Australia. Uh, federal level, but also um, with states, um, which potentially governments, civil society, in terms of their mainly cybersecurity issues. Um, and then I'm not talking about technical issues, but more the strategic policy side of cybersecurity. So do they understand what's the operating environment they're in? Uh, are they aware of their threats and vulnerabilities? And what kind of mechanisms can you put in place to help organizations, be that industry, private sector, or government, um, in getting uh, prepared and and sufficiently resilient. So that's something we try to do here in Australia. Um, But actually, the bulk of my work takes place in the region, so in particular in the the Pacific and in Southeast Asia, where uh, mainly with support from from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, try to help uh, other governments in the region um, to do sort of the same thing is to get an understanding of what are the main issues in cybersecurity internationally, regionally, but also in their respective countries, uh, and try to see what kind of support with uh, large can offer uh, in, make, in making those countries more cyber mature, so to speak. Uh, so it's looking at uh, capacity building in the form of training, workshops, um, getting dialogues together, so bringing government, industry, civil society, and others together in a, in a conversation, um, and sometimes just activities which look at getting an understanding of what this all is and, and what that may imply. And uh, how did you become involved in cyber policy itself? What was your story prior to joining ASPE uh, in particular? Well, as you might be able to tell, I'm, uh, I'm not Australian. Um, so I moved to Australia only about a year ago uh, and had a previous career uh, back in Europe, back in the Netherlands and, uh, uh, and, and elsewhere overseas. 
Um, I, I graduated in, in international relations, as, uh, as, as probably many of the, uh, the listeners uh, do or did as well, um, where I specialized in um, international security and defense issues. And then by a bit of coincidence, I ended up doing a, an internship with the Dutch Foreign Ministry, so the Dutch version of, of DFAT, um, where I was looking at where we was working on all kinds of issues related to fragile states. Uh, so in particular, um, countries in Central Africa, Afghanistan, Middle East, um, and, and, we, and we're talking about the mid 2000s here, um, where there were internal conflicts in those countries uh, and the international community decided to help. Um, and, and working uh, with, with a government agency, which was very active in those, in, in trying to resolve those um, those conflicts. Um, I, I was exposed to that as well. Later on, I had the chance to move to defense, um, and and actually, that's what that's that's uh, what was more or less a tipping point for me, uh, because there I had the chance actually to go into the field, to not just work uh, behind a desk at a ministry uh, somewhere, but actually go in the field. So I, I spent a couple of years uh, in missions. Uh, and that's where I saw, let's say, what kind of difference you can make being in the field, um, doing work with, in my case, uh, uh, colleagues from different countries, uh, being uh, colleagues from different countries uh, who are working in a crisis management mission, like a NATO mission in Afghanistan, where I, for example, met uh, 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 various colleagues from, from, the, from the Australian Defense Forces. Um, but also, that's where you see the international community at work. Uh, so what Textbooks and in lectures looked like very art, very abstract. That's where you see uh, international politics playing out. That's where you see international donor coordination uh, playing out. That's where you see how power politics and some kind of a more uh, liberal or uh, or idealistic uh, 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 approaches are are clashing or sometimes are uh, are aligned with one another. So that's what got me into kind of this very kind of operational stuff being on the ground, advising local governments, local counterparts, doing training, conducting training, um, and, and where you could really see an impact. Um, and, and that was just a, a very great experience to have, um, but also something that um, you don't see too many people do. Um, so many people are either in an academic environment or in a policy environment, but there are not that many people who actually um, uh, uh, working, um, uh, uh, I mean, uh, working in a very practical, in a practical sense. So um, that's what inspired me. Um, and at that stage, I had never been exposed to anything cyber before. Um, uh, but it was only when I moved back to um, back to the Netherlands after spending a couple of years overseas and joined a uh, the, the, the Dutch Diplomatic Academy, um, which was full-time training and capacity building. Um, and then the topic of cyber in the context of international affairs or in the context of diplomacy uh, was kind of a new topic, um, and, and this is 2015, um, when, when the Netherlands hosted the Global Conference on Cyberspace. So maybe half of the world came, came to The Hague for a uh, three-day conference, um, and uh, I was asked whether I could develop a program which would look at um, helping diplomats, people in a diplomatic role with a diplomatic background, 
in understanding what is the whole cyber debate about, what are the big things that need to be discussed, and we will be discussed during the, the conference. And that's how I eventually ended up here with, with ASPE, um, looking at, at similar things, but then in a different part of the world uh, with a whole different dynamic. Um, and and, um, and 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 well, with, with also different uh, objectives and aims that your state government, for instance, has had, and um, the discussions taking place back in Europe or in the states. Now, you've you've also led a number of projects related to to cyber policy, namely the Global uh, Conference on Cyberspace, the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, and the Internet Governance Forum. Um, could you explain to us what was involved in these projects and, I suppose, the overall aims? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, um, I mean, these are a few uh, names of projects or, um, or forums that are taking place uh, quite regularly or whatever what kind of uh, uh, um, um, existing uh, platforms um, for dialogues on uh, current issues in internet governance or, or, in, or in discussions about um, stability in, in, in international cyberspace. So, for example, you mentioned uh, the Global Conference on Cyberspace, which was a, um, a, uh, an initiative initially uh, commenced by the UK in 2011, um, where they realized um, we see a trend where, um, where states are getting more involved in the governance of cyberspace. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but if you realize that, let's say, the, the start of the internet was was supported by a government, the, the United States government, but it was primarily a, a story of engineers, of entrepreneurs uh, uh, developing technology and making that commercially uh, viable. Um, under the premise of that being an open, free and secure platform um, where you have uh, total access to all information that's there, uh, it's not restricted in any way, um, and it's also to a degree secure. Now, since let's say the internet and everything related to that has become so socioeconomically relevant and, and, and all societies have become so reliant on it, um, it, it kind of by default also became an interest for states to either take control of the debate, um, but in more and more countries around the world take control of what's being put on the internet. So. Uh, to take control to an extent of, um, of the information which is there. Um, and some states go even further in, in, in exerting their control over um, the internet infrastructure. Um, um, and, and you can easily, let's say, uh, uh, pick the countries which belong to which uh, category of, of states. Now, these projects that you, um, that you refer to uh, are... Um, are kind of gatherings of, of, of main stakeholders, be that government, industry, the technical community, and, and also civil society, um, in having a debate how to maintain this free and open character of the internet so that it's available to all, um, so that also everyone can reap the benefits of it, while also taking into account that there are um, security issues related to, to the internet. Um, and, uh, and my involvement there has been to, um, to let's say, kind of develop and run a number of sub-projects, which are sometimes very specific issues uh, on how to raise awareness uh, uh, amongst different um, communities about what 
how to improve your, your cyber security or your cyber resilience, um, um, but also um, uh, being involved in a, um, call it a community of practice, um, where all the global, where, where all the people who are globally active in cyber capacity building are joining their forces and make their expertise available to either countries, organizations, or, or groups who are in need of certain expertise. Uh, so to provide this platform where uh, demand for support matches supply of expertise and support. And what in particular makes cybersecurity such a vital aspect of international relations? What is it that, that encourages states to involve themselves in cyber affairs? Well, let's, let's start with let's the observation that I think with a few exceptions, all states in the world are active in, in the cyber domain. Um, be that as part of, let's say, a security paradigm or as a development and economic paradigm. Um, so, I mean, in, in different parts of the world, it, it's, it's, a, it's also a enabler for socioeconomic growth. Uh, but in, in, I, think, I think the main, the main attention goes to, most attention goes to, let's say, the security implications. Now, what makes, let's say, those states interested in the cyber domain? I think, I mean, there are a few issues, I think. Uh, uh, one is um, we see overall greater competition in the world. Um, so, uh, I mean, we, if we're moving towards a multipolar world where you have different centers of gravity, um, but also increased competition, I think that's the overall context of the world that we face today. Um, the cyber domain enables states to operate at, uh, um, let's say, with less costs involved, and, involved, and, and with that I mean it's easier to, as to, to spy on countries using, using your cyber tools or using the network uh, and not being discovered than any other form of espionage. And I think we have to realize that maybe 90% of all cyber activities by states is just good old fashioned espionage, be that for security reasons or for commercial espionage. Um, <clears throat> but also it's a kind of, um, I mean, they call it the factor of the plausible deniability so you can do certain things in other countries um, without either being discovered or uh, having the ability to deny that you are the author of of something happening. Um, and I think you, you and, and the book is of that nature uh, of, of those activities that have been exposed. So it makes it a kind of low cost uh, activity for states to influence other states. Also, that's nothing nothing strange in the world of international affairs. This has been happening uh, for centuries, uh, but I think the cyber domain puts an, an next, a new element to it uh, and makes it to an extent easier. At the same time, what we see is that no, I mean, hardly any cyber activity has, has reached the, uh, the threshold of a kind of cyber attack or an attack uh, in the traditional sense. So uh, even though states are very active, they also try not to exaggerate the um, the effect of their activities, uh, and and there maybe the, um, I mean the the, the Russian influence of, over the U.S. elections is is maybe just more an exception rather than um, than the norm as to the extent and the um, the severity of of what was done there done there. That's that's a really interesting comment because I suppose one of the reasons that I chose to to use cyber affairs as a a topic for a podcast was particular instances like that, and I suppose the WannaCry attack as well, which really 
obviously caught our attentions for a while. Quite interesting to hear that referred to as the as the exception um, to the norm because it seems that those things seem to be happening more frequently now than before. But I wonder when it comes to the way in which states actually um, interact with each other in this regard, are we at a stage now where cyber relations between states are subject to quite a, a well-established understanding, um, rules, norms, expectations of behaviour, or, or is this still quite a grey area and something that's evolving as we speak? Um, depending on who you talk to, um, but I think generally uh, it's still a very grey area. Um, and there have been attempts, and actually that those, those attempts go back quite a while, I think into the late 1990s, um, where there have been initiatives to um, to see whether the international community at large um, were able to draw up certain rules of the road, as they call it, um, and in official language, it's kind of responsible state behavior in cyberspace. Um, so we all realize states are, will, and continue to be active in the cyber domain, um, but can we agree on certain rules, or certain norms, or what is tolerable and what's definitely uh, um, and not uh, not acceptable behavior. And the examples that you mentioned, like WannaCry or NotPetya, are clearly, at least, let's say, from, from Australia's perspective and, and, and like-minded countries, are clearly acts uh, orchestrated or authored by another state which are beyond, um, beyond what is acceptable. Now, um, that being said, um, what can you do as a state to do anything about it or um, retaliate. And I think that's, that's one of the main issues uh, many policymakers policy are confronted with, is um, um, there is not so much that you can do. Uh, first of all, it takes, takes a hell of a lot of time to, to make the attribution, as they call it, solid enough. Um, so for example, Australia and the, the Five Eyes partners um, attributed um, uh, NotPetya to, uh, to, to Russia, uh, but only six months after the act. Um, so, so by then, I mean, the effect of an attribution or as, a, as an official, um, um, the official attribution, the public attribution is, I mean, the effect is all, almost already gone uh, by the time that you, that you do it. Um, and, and it hasn't stopped Russia from, from let's say, Interfering in other states' affairs, uh, other states' affairs. Um, now that being said, if you take take the perspective, and that's that's I think where I'm coming from. This is just let's say the very early stages of of a kind of international regime on what on 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 what states can and, and can't do in cyberspace. Uh, and since we're still drawing the lines, states will step over it or, 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 or keep within the remit of uh, what is currently seen as acceptable. But that will change over time, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Now, as I said, there have been initiatives uh, which started in the late 1990s, uh, and in particular, that's also what Australia is referring to, a UN group of governmental experts who put out uh, a few reports in 2010, um, 2013, and 2015, which actually outlines a number of those rules, um, and some of those rules are um, uh, you shall not attack the critical infrastructure of another state, you will not um, willingly uh, allow criminals to act on your 
uh, um, uh, territory, be that your ICT territory or your physical territory. Um, but also that international public law and international humanitarian law uh, applies to um, the cyber domain. So you see that, that, that things are moving, um, but there's by, by far there is no consensus. Um, and the latest uh, gathering of that, that group of governmental experts actually um, did not manage to reach consensus um, because they were trying to drill down in some of the details of the overall principles that they agreed. And that's where you see the, uh, the great uh, divergence of interest between Australia and our partners and the Russia's and China's and, and, and other countries in the world. Uh, which favor uh, stricter control, a, they're even pushing for a kind of treaty which will outline what is and shouldn't happen uh, on the internet. Um, uh, but it also puts, let's say, states in clear control over, uh, over the governance of, of, of the cyber domain. Um, and I think what, what Australia and partners are looking to achieve is that it remains a kind of dynamic, creative and innovative space um, where, gov where governments have control to an extent, uh, but not to an extent that it's control and allows for uh, a limitless uh, censorship. Um, and I think that's that those are some of the debates that are really currently ongoing. Um, and, and it's quite exciting to see how that will develop in the future. But some people are very pessimistic. There are no rules for everything is possible. Um, I think we see, we see a slowly emerging um, slowly emerging, uh, emerging. Um, we see some lines being drawn, um, and is that enforceable? No. Um, will horrible things still happen? For sure. Um, but I think we are at the very early stages of, uh, of some kinds of rules of the road, as they call it. Is it in any way possible to know? how cyber might influence conflict in the future as, as that also develops? Can we expect, say, wars to be fought digitally? Is that perhaps where we're heading? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean what you see is that, that countries are developing um, a military doctrine around the cyber domain. So does Australia, so do all, let's say, defense forces, of, of all developed defense forces in the world. Now, there is this, 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 this great, I mean, kind of academic debate you have, um, I think Thomas Ridge, who has published this book, uh, Cyber War Will Never Take Place. Um, and uh, I think Richard Clark, who said, uh, I mean, who's all about cyber war. Uh, all conflicts in the future will be, will be a cyber war. Now, I mean, I can't predict how war fighting will look like in, in the years or decades to come. Um, but I think overall, what we see happening now is that um, cyber becomes a part of a, a war effort or, or a part of a um, uh, foreign policy effort, uh, both in positive ways as in negative ways. Um, for example, you see that happening in the conflict in, in the Middle East, uh, where both, uh, for example, um, ISIS is using uh, the internet as a as a tool to recruit and to to communicate, etc. Et um, whereas we, be that Australia, the states, and, and also UK, um, have declared that they have used the cyber domain to actually target ISIS down in the Middle East. Um, so it's becoming, let's say, an integral part of any kind of military operation, 
whether that's for stability purposes or for uh, for um, uh, for fighting wars. Um, so it is becoming part. Whether whether we will see a cyber war as such, um, I think the judge is still out. Um, I, I I I mean my gut feeling now is that it's not as strategic element as some people feel it is. So you can do certain things, um, but you can't, I mean, you can't do any, let's say, physical harm yet, uh, which will impact massively on society, which, uh, which, which, which is normally, let's say, the objective of a military operation, be that for good or for worse. Um, so for example, the, um, the, the, the American, the alleged American-Israeli operation against the nuclear facility in, in Iran, um, what they call the Stuxnet, uh, a few years ago, um, which some people claim is was the most advanced and, and the best executed cyber attack ever. Um, others argue actually that attack um, accelerated Iran's nuclear program um, because they 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 realized they others were trying to interfere, um, and it just as it sparked um, them to invest more. Um, and, and develop more rapidly. So it had actually a, uh, um, a counterproductive effect um, in the long run. So it's, it's a great tactical tool, but it's a strategic tool. Uh, I think that remains questionable. Are there any nations in particular that stand out with regards to their cyber capabilities? And I suppose as, as a second part to that question, how does Australia compare and, and, and where must it improve? Um, well, I think the usual suspects, quite honestly, are, are the most advanced and the most active in this, in this domain. So they'll be talking about uh, the United States and China. Uh, I think in, in, in regards to very, quite sophisticated uh, and developed uh, uh, offensive cyber capabilities. And I think in the kind of second order, um, but not comparable to one another, uh, states like the UK and, and Russia are very active, but I mean, they're not less playing um, in, in, the, in the Champions League. And how does Australia compare? I mean, Australia is, uh, I think, from a, from a, uh, uh, in terms of their offensive and defensive capabilities from, from the government side, so from defense and um, from defense, uh, I, I think sits within, let's say, the, the, the most developed countries globally. That being said, um, that's just one part of, of, let's say, how secure of how, how, or how mature you are as a nation. Since, I mean, and that's what we see, is that if attacks happen, they do not necessarily target, let's say, government facilities or, or uh, defense facilities. They sometimes do, but they target Businesses, critical infrastructure um, providers, um, uh, so the, let's say the social economic domain of a country, and I think that's where um, where Australia still has a, has a has a has a big task ahead of it, is to make sure that let's say all of Australia, um, so so the industry, um, just you and me, uh, universities. We saw the, I mean, we all have heard about the uh, the hack of the uh, the ANU. Um, that all those um, uh, which may which, which which can be critical infrastructure or near critical infrastructure or interesting targets for adversaries uh, also get their cybersecurity act in order and I think that's that's not at a stage where we are yet um, but that's also the case in countries like the US um, and Russia and China so that's 
it's a kind of uh, uh, level playing field. Um, but that, that, I think that's that's the greatest weakness that, um, that 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 we see. So it'd be fair to say then that there is there is work that needs to be done, um, insofar as defence, but also um, quite a significant role to play for the private sector, being that they are so frequently targeted. Yeah, I mean, in, I think in the whole in the whole cyber security and cyber affairs domain, um, whereas maybe most of our attention goes to government and what states and what government entities could, could and should do, um, really, uh, and maybe I'm not putting a wrong number to it, but maybe 90% of the whole ecosystem is in the hands of, of private sector, uh, or at least of, non-governmental, of the non-government sector. Um, and, uh, and I think that's where our attention should be even more um, in, in making sure that they realize that they can be a target of a nation state of an adversary, um, and, uh, and and that you need at least need to be aware of it, um, so that if you see something happening, um, that you're immediately, let's say, I mean, that it triggers your mind to say, actually, what's what's happening here? Is it just a technical issue, or is it part of something something bigger, which we need to be concerned about? Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the non-governmental sector in cybersecurity is is uh, is by length, uh, more important than um, than the government sector. It's a shame that we have to, um, at this point, start thinking about bringing our podcast to an end. But I, I do wonder whether or not you have any final observations, anything that you think we may have missed, but also perhaps some advice for anybody interested in following this space more closely. Uh, if you're interested in this, in this, in, in this um, this field, um, I would definitely suggest you su- subscribe to our uh, daily digest, um, uh, which is a great resource uh, and will get you, uh, I mean, all kinds of news headlines uh, for what's happening in, in the world uh, in cyber. Um, and in terms of um, in terms of advice uh, for anyone who is contemplating a career in this. Um, um, don't don't let the fact that cyber and and ICTs are are, are in the core very technical issues uh, is is extremely technical. Um, that doesn't mean that there that that if that in, that is of interest to you that you can't have a career in it. Uh, I don't have any technical technical background at all, um, but sitting here with colleagues who have either a digital rights background or a technical background. Um, we really help each other in, in getting the different perspectives together. So when I was talking about the norms uh, and the capacity building work, that's 99% either international relations, public uh, public policy um, uh, 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 knowledge that I that I can put in, uh, or my understanding of, of what it means to work in other cultures and, and across the world. Um, in terms of uh, training and capacity enhancement, uh, and I think that's so. If, if this is this is a topic of interest to you, um, don't let the technical factor scare you away. Um, uh, I think uh, we actually need more people with, let's say, the social skills or the international relations skills or the uh, knowing how how do political systems work um, to get engaged in this field, um, because that's that's for the moment in in the region in Australia and around. Uh, really, a minority group, uh, and 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 that's that's uh, well something I'm trying to um, 
to work on from, from my end as well is, is can we get more political thinkers and international relations people uh, interested in this in this work um, so that we, um, we increase overall knowledge and understanding. So don't let the technical stuff uh, scare you away. That will be my message. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dyson House podcast. Join us next week for episode three. And don't forget to subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.